Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the 46th annual Common Ground Country Fair. We're so excited to see you here this morning. The Common Ground Country Fair is hosted by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, also known as MOFCA. And I'm Sarah Alexander. I'm the executive director of MOFCA, and so happy to see you all here today. Thank you. MOFCA was formed in 1971. We work year-round to create a food system that is healthy and fair for all of us. And through education, advocacy, and training, MOFCA is helping farmers thrive, making more local organic food available, and building sustainable communities. We encourage you to visit the MOFCA tent, which is right over here to my left to learn more, and we're also excited to share that Mafka and the fair are entirely powered by the sun. We have a 102 kilowatt solar array on the grounds here that were installed in 2017 with our partners at Revision Energy. So thank you, and we're very excited for that. Mafka's campus is 300 acres situated in unceded Wabanaki homelands. Mafka is working throughout the year to build relationships with Wabanaki communities, partner on food sovereignty projects, and advocate for Wabanaki tribal sovereignty. We encourage everyone to visit the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance tent right over here on the commons to support Wabanaki artisans and to learn more about Wabanaki culture. So I'm very excited this morning to introduce Frances Moore LePay. She's the author or co-author of 20 books, many focusing on themes of living democracy, suggesting a government accountable to citizens and a way of living aligned with the deep human need for connection, meaning, and power. Her first book, Diet for a Small Planet, published in 1971, has now sold three million copies. And her latest work is the 50th anniversary edition of Diet for a Small Planet, released in 2021. In this book, she integrates her life's work of connecting food to freedom, including timely material from her 2017 book, co-authored with Adam Eichen, called Daring Democracy, Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection for the America We Want. She's the co-founder of Oakland-based Food First and the Cambridge-based Small Planet Institute, which she leads with her daughter, Anna LePay. She's the recipient of 20 honorary degrees. She's been a visiting scholar at MIT and the University of California, Berkeley. And in 1987, she received the Wright Livelihood Award, often called the Alternative Nobel. Today, she's gonna to talk about how the food choices we make each day connect us to humanity's biggest challenges, from needless hunger, to diet-related disease, to the climate crisis, and the undermining of democracy. Please join me in welcoming Francis Moore LePay. Wow, <laughs> I am honored and I am thrilled to be here. And I just wanted to 
especially thanks, Sarah Alexander, April Boucher, the, the entire Magfa crew. And I was thrilled to learn that we actually share a birthday. 1971 <laughs> was when Diet for Small Planet came out and when this great organization was founded. So that's pretty cool, too. <sighs> so before I begin, I want to assure you that although I do cover some pretty heavy stuff in the beginning of this talk, that I move to what I find most inspiring happening in the world today. And you are among those. But I just want you to know that don't get too down. I'm going to set the stage. Um, but maybe before I begin, I want to recite a poem. Denise Levertov, Beginners. We have only begun to love the earth. We have only begun to imagine the fullness of life. How can desire fail? We've only begun to know how it might be to live as siblings with beast and flower, no longer as oppressor. We've only begun to imagine the power that is ours if we would join our solitudes in a communion of struggle. So much is unfolding that must complete its gesture. So much is in bud. <laughs> Thank you, Denise. So, I do want to start going way, way back to who I was then, before I wrote Diet, and how um, my path unfolded. I was a child of the 60s. I came to adulthood during an era where we were truly fighting poverty, the war on poverty, and I wanted to join that war. So I went to Philadelphia, and I worked door to door with the poorest neighborhood, trying to ensure that they got what they were entitled to under the, our law. And during that time, I got very close to one particular woman in our women's group. But months after I really bonded with Lily, she died of a heart attack in her 40s. And I thought, wait, Lily didn't really die of a heart attack. She died of poverty. I've got to get to the roots of Lily's death. I've got to understand. And I was pretty terrified because I didn't know how to begin. And then the light bulb, <laughs> food, food. If I could just understand why there's hunger in the world, food is so basic, it connects it to the earth, to each other, to our bodies. If I could just understand why hunger in the world, then that would unlock the mysteries and I would understand the roots of Lily's untimely death and I would know what to do. So. In that era, <laughs> what was happening? This was uh, 1969, and Paul Ehrlich's bomb, the population bomb, had come out. Those of my generation may remember that, telling us that, oh, why hunger? Oh, we've hit the Earth's limits. We've hit the Earth's limits. We can't feed ourselves. And I had friends who were saying, oh, I can't have children. That would be unethical. And so I said, oh, I'm gonna go to the library and put the numbers together and ask, is it true? that hunger is caused by scarcity. And I did that <laughs> with the help of a friendly librarian and my dad's slide rule. Anybody with gray hair know what that means? And uh, I soon discovered that there was more than enough food for all of us. And that message I had to get out. I said, oh, we can't blame nature. We can't blame scarcity. It is our, the rules. And, and, and culture that we create together that determines whether there is hunger or not. And that is the message I wanted to get out. 
And so what's happened since then? Is, are you getting too much feedback? Okay, I, I can step back, I think. So, I just want to say, okay, where are we since I was in that library, <laughs> UC Berkeley? Um, since that first aha, today we produce for each person on Earth a fifth more calories than we did then, even though our population is doubled. And despite this abundance, we are intensely in this, this abundance that we are experiencing, in spite of incredible waste. For example, worldwide, one-third of all food is wasted. And then there's a second kind of waste, and that is that, uh, what my book focused on, is that it, our meat-centered diets are inherently wasteful. Just remember this statistic. 80% of our agricultural land worldwide is devoted to livestock that contribute only 20% to us in calories. So I began calling that a protein factory in reverse. <laughs> and so that's some of another way, another way that we can understand the illogic, the waste and destruction that we have created. And then of course, when I wrote Die for a Small Planet, I hadn't begun, none of us, you know, lay people had understood the potential of the climate crisis and our food production contribution to that. And uh, what I now know is that uh, if cattle were a country, it would be the sixth largest greenhouse gas emitter. And um, despite all of that built-in waste and, and threat, that meat production per capita is up throughout the world. Now, at the very same time, at the very same time, 800 million people in the world still go hungry. Now. And uh, in addition, many of us who get enough calories, of course, uh, aren't really fed because we have turned our diet, particularly in the United States, we are, we are one of the most extreme in this regard. We have turned our national diet into a health hazard. What I mean by this is that 67% of the calories that children and teens in America eat are so ultra-processed that they're virtually without nutrition. And it is one reason this diet that our diabetes rates have just skyrocketed. And meat, in, in 2015, the WHO, the World Health Organization, said that red meat was a probable carcinogen and that processed meat was a carcinogen. And yet, I know very, very few people, including myself until recently, who knew that designation that the World Health Organization had made. So considering all this, it's not surprising that now our diets are connected to one out of every five deaths um, annually. And, um, and the, of course, the harm done is not just to the eaters, it is to the people who work the land. Each year, worldwide, 44% of those who work the land experience at least one case of poisoning from pesticides. And here in the U.S., on average, there are 20,000 people treated, uh, farm, 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 uh, farm workers treated for pesticide poisoning. So, yes, think about it this way. We humans are the brightest species for sure, 
but I bet you we're the only species that has turned our, their diet into a health hazard and producing it into a health hazard. So it doesn't make any sense. So let me jump back again to my youth, <laughs> trying to sort this out. As I was writing what became Diet for a Small Planet, by the way, confession, I never expected to be a writer because I made a C on my first English paper in college. <laughs> but when you, you know what it is, when you've got to do something, you learn how to do it and you do it. So I, I know that's the spirit of the people in this audience. So I jump back to my youth. Um, I, I realized that food has this very special power. So that's what got me going. It connects us to our own bodies, to the earth, who all who grow and who all who eat, and now we know to climate. And um, you probably know this, but our food system contributes up to 37% of greenhouse gases worldwide. Wow. So every day, multiple times a day, the choices we make in food ripple out, ripple out to other species, the earth, the water, the sky. And when I say that, I, I think I can see my friend, the late Hans-Peter Durer, saying to me, Frankie, in ecological and biological systems of the earth, there are no parts, there are only participants. <laughs> so we're all participants affecting other participants in this, in this very closely linked earth that we are privileged to be on. So from all of what I've said, it's clear that that our many, many relationships we have can either lead to uh, um, greater death on our planet or decisions that we make can lead to deeper understanding, healing, and um, great meaning in our lives. And I would also add here that beyond our personal choices, and I'm going to get that more into that, that of course the, the rules that we make as polities uh, um, make a huge huge difference. So, having said that, I guess it was maybe 20 years ago I started saying hunger is not caused by a scarcity of food, it's caused by a scarcity of democracy. But then I could almost hear people saying, oh, thank you. <laughs> but Because I would hear people saying, nice soundbite lady, but what does that mean? <laughs> and so my life has really been focused on uh, trying to weave this this together, that scarcity of democracy is our root crisis. Because what does democracy mean? It has to mean that we have a voice, an equal voice in life's essentials. And of course, nothing more essential than food and healthy water and air, of course. And so if our voices are drowned out, pri private concentrated in power, is that democracy? I don't think so. I don't think it is. And so I just want to let you all know that currently uh, the leading expert, uh, this organization founded by Eleanor Roosevelt, the Freedom House, ranks the U.S. democracy behind 61 countries. We rank 62nd in the world. We rank 62nd. And um, I would say that that would really shock most Americans. And so um, we've seen our democracy then increasingly undermined by private power. Just agribusiness just in the last decade has seen unprecedented consolidation in agrochemicals, fertilizers, farm machinery, etc. And farmland moves, as you know, into ever fewer hands. 
Five white men, for example, control more farmland than 33,000 American uh, farmland owners. And so many farmers are renters uh, that even those who uh, have title lack independence. Dependence on concentrated industries that buy what they produce. Just four chicken giants control 60% of the market and the beef market that is make that 85% of the beef market. So they dictate the terms. That is not democratic. So today, more than 1,000 agribusiness lobbyists spend nearly $82 million a year to shape our legislation. And I, I hear <laughs> I added a quote from John Adams, who understands, understood the difficulty of that when he wrote, power over a man's subsistence amounts to power over his will. Yes. And so we taxpayers then provide uh, uh, $6.5 billion to subsidize commodity crops. And many of those, most of those, are part of this highly processed diet that, is a, that causes so much death and disease in our society. Okay, <laughs> we can take a deep breath because the rest of my talk is about what gets me up in the morning and uh, what got me here today. So we are also, I believe, strongly believe in a moment of a great turning, a great national and international turning toward life. And I'm celebrating that with you today because you are leaders of that great turning. And I thank you for it. In so many arenas, I celebrate you. For one, I just want to go through some of the, some of the things that excite me, just the numbers that are good. Uh, organic farming, gaining ground fast. In just one decade, nationally, orga uh, nationally organically far farmed acres almost doubled. And Maine ranks second in organic acres per capita in the country. Woo! Woo, 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 woo! And um, I was, as I said, I was excited that we, uh, we share, Mafka and I share this birthday, and that, um, and that you are so critical to this transition. Uh, so, uh, and I want to be sure that we in the East Coasters don't think it's just about what we enlightened people are doing, because I was excited uh, to learn that um, over just... Um, uh, five years in, uh, from 2011 to 2016, six southern states more than doubled their organic acreage. Other great news, organic food sales are, are rising twice as fast as the rate of other sales. Almost 40% of us uh, report that at least some of the time we buy that. Biden is turning away from obedience to the agribusiness powers when um, that that um, ha had too much influence over uh, Obama and Trump, I believe. Uh, and now USDA is putting $300 million into organic transition initiative. Yes. Also, farm to school programs in the last two decades have gone from six to 40,000. <laughs> so far, more than 60 colleges and university food services have brought students together for a program of sustainably grown, minimally processed food in their cafeterias. Since the mid-90s, 
Local farmers' markets have jumped more than fourfold. Almost 9,000 are spread across the country. Community-supported agriculture, yes, I love it, I'm part of it. Uh, there are now, you know, that just started in the 80s, and now there are 13,000 farms that partner, where consumers partner with the farmers, community-supported agriculture. And my final bullet here is almost 30,000 community gardens all across the country today. Almost 30,000. What an emergence. Now, also, I want to suggest that it's not just here. And one of my all-time heroes is a man named Jules Preddy, who has made a career. He's at the University of Essex, Essex in the UK. And he's made a career of putting together watchers, you know, people all over the world who are tracking the rise of sustainable farming and farming communities. He's been doing this for decades. And Jules Preddy and his team all over the world, as of, 20, uh, as of 2000, had found half a million of locally, cooperatively created, sustainable farming communities. About, and guess what? Over the next, I get teary about this, over the next 20 years, from 2000 to 2020, 8 million more were counted. So from that period, that's 8.5 million of these uh, local, sustainable, cooperatively, you know, working with each other kind of approach. Um, us farm, farmers are doing their thing together, and it's working. And it's in area, he estimates, it's, they, they cover, well, 153 countries, but an area now about the size of India, which seems pretty substantial. And so there's much to celebrate. And of course, again, a repeat, that this so much depends on our democracy. And the simple definition of democracy, of course, is this governance accountable to citizens, not to donors and to lobbyists. And um, so, um, what does embracing democracy look like? Uh, well, there are two parts of our preamble to our Constitution. I love to look at that. The first thing our Constitution says is establish justice. Did you know that was the beginning of the preamble? Establish justice. And it also talks about preserving the public welfare. And so that is a spirit uh, that we can take in the best of our, our country. And so I feel that your goals and my goals are aligned with these purposes. And so, um, but of course, we've always been uh, vulnerable to tyranny. And John Adams wrote that monopolized property is a curse to mankind. And of course, that was when only the land was really what the property was. But translated today, it would mean uh, financial security and access to healthy food. And um, so not long ago, from the 40s to the 70s, we were definitely moving in the direction that Adams was talking about and that I think we stand for. We were moving in the direction of greater fairness, greater equity, that actually uh, during those decades, all income classes doubled their real family income, 40s to the 70s, but the poorest gained the most. And then, as you're, many of you are aware, there was a big back backlash by business, business interests. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce went on a crusade to reverse that and helped elect a Ronald Reagan and a, and a beginning of wealth rushing to the top. And so now, 
this is really stunning figure. Today, inequality in the United States is worse than in about 120 countries. We are so extreme. We think of, you know, this myth about opportunity in America. Inequality, income inequality is more extreme than about 120 countries. So this happened because uh, the shift turned that government was the problem, as Ronald Reagan said. Mark, the free market is the solution. But there is no such thing as a free market. Every market has rules. And our rules are funneling more and more wealth to the top. And so uh, to, to really understand where we are going from here, I want to underscore that humans live by stories. I believe it was the Hopi Indian and Plato both are attributed with saying, he who tells the story rules society. So what is the story? I think the root problem is that our story is that, well, all we can count on is that humans are selfish and competitive. And uh, that's, not, that's pretty much all we can trust. And so we have to turn over our fate to an automatic force, right? This market that decides outcomes for us. And that's how we end up with this extreme, extreme uh, inequality in income. I should tell you that, that we're about on par with Haiti in terms of our income inequality. So life on this beautiful planet requires a new story. And you are writing it, one aligned with who we really are, one that accepts the worst in us. Yes, we can be self-interested and even cruel, but uh, a system that keeps that, that accepts that that's possible, but it brings forth the very best in us. And what are the conditions that bring forth the best in us? They are the widest dispersion of power, so no one is voiceless, transparency in public affairs, because we all know we do better when someone is watching. And I just want to tell you a funny story about that. <laughs> uh, again, the UK professor, uh, psychologist, noticed that his colleagues were not paying for their coffee at the honor system coffee service. So what did he do? He put a photograph of human eyes above the coffee service, and the people who pay just, you know, the, the percent uh, paying for their coffee just soared. So all we need is even to think that somebody's watching. <laughs> Maybe, reminded they might be, and we do better. So transparency is absolutely essential. And third, sorry, I said dispersion of power, transparency in public affairs, and third is a culture of mutual accountability. Yes, I believe that some are guilty, but we're all responsible. That is from uh, Rabbi uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. Some are guilty, but we're all responsible. So we can point fingers as long as we come all the way around, because we're all part of the need to act for solutions, yes. So, um, uh, so uh, as I uh, go from here, that um, uh, this mutual accountability, as I say, means that we stop pointing and we take responsibility. And the great news is this pathway enables what I call honest hope, hope that takes it all in, hope that is, it motivates an historic movement to bring about a life to these three conditions, to widest dispersion of power, transparency, and uh, mutual accountability. So there is now in America, for the first time in my life, a real 
uh, intersectional democracy movement. People understand, they get it, that um, uh, your passion may be food and farming, uh, mine is too, but I can also devote my attention to the core question of democracy. And when, when I hesitated once, a friend of mine said, but Frankie, you have two kids and you love them both. You can love two children at once. <laughs> so we can love our food and farming focus and our work for a truly living democracy. We can do both. <laughs> and so our little small planet institute has partnered with an organization called Democracy Initiative and created a website called democracymovement.us. And if you go to the map there, you can go right to Maine and see these seven organizations in Maine that are working for uh, real democracy here and as part of a national movement. So that's that, that we can love two children at once. I just love that when somebody reminded me. Uh, and we can make these uh, yeah, deep like system it. reforms that I am talking about. And if we need any extra motivation, um, here is uh, the way I think of it. Is democracy is not a dull duty. It's who we are. We are social creatures. We need power, meaning, and connection with others to meet those core needs through democratic access. And so whatever our primary focus, we don't have to choose. We can be part of this incredible moment. And. Um, so before I wrap up, I have to tackle a question which haunt, haunts many of us, uh, and that is, do humans really have what it takes for democracy? And I say yes for three very thing, reasons that are very clear to me. Um, uh, you know, I'll just mention three of our human qualities that suit us for living democracy. Uh, one is a deep sense of fairness. Let me say that our species is not the only species that has a deep need for fairness. It turns out that capuchin monkeys, if they see their neighbor monkey getting a better treat, they will throw back their ration to the caretaker as if they're saying, not fair, not fair, I want he, what he or she has. <laughs> so this sense of fairness is in uh, primates, uh, and we are included in that. And. Um, so that it runs very, very deep. Um, and so the second um, uh, is this notion that empathy is a very, very uh, deep human quality that prepares us for democracy. And one of the pieces of evidence that even babies cry at the sound of other babies crying, but not at their own sound of their own crying. <laughs> but this sense that we, we do walk in each other's shoes, we can't help it, that empathy is part of what defines our species. And the third quality that makes us able to live democracy is, as I said earlier, it is uh, cooperation. So, cooperation, that anthropologists tell us that the depth of our capacity for cooperation is what characterizes our species, and that we are the only species that can engage in what they call intentional, intentional uh, cooperation, shared intentionality, moving toward a goal together. That is what we do, we, we homo sapiens. So all this is true, I believe, but equally important to us 
uh, democracy is admitting that our species, not just a few psychopaths, but our species also has the capacity for unspeakable cruelty. And this is the Achilles heel, yes, the othering that I brought up earlier. And so this is so essential that we accept this, that we are vulnerable to othering, and that is another reason why democracy is so essential, that finger pointing gets us nowhere. Um, so uh, I also hear people say that, well, Frankie, I kind of get with you, but you know what? We're just too polarized in America right now. So I just want to give you a few counters on that as I begin to wrap up. So roughly eight in 10 Americans favor limits on both raising and spending money in congressional campaigns. Eight in 10 agree that rich and big corporations have too much power and oppose the Supreme Court 2010 Citizens United um, ruling that unleashed even more money in politics. Amazing, right? Eight in 10. Also, eight in 10 believe U.S. should prioritize renewable energy over fossil fuels. Plus, two-thirds of likely voters favor the For the People Act, which is that strong act that hasn't passed yet, but which would protect voting rights and end gerrymandering and uh, money in politics. Two-thirds, two-thirds support that. So we can free ourselves then by embracing our wide areas of agreement, and that can stoke honest hope and courage to act. And a big shout out to Maine here for your leadership in democracy. In, yes, I, uh, when I wrote Daring Democracy with Adam Eichen, we were so moved by the fact that Maine was right on the front line passing in the year 2000 public financing for your elections. And this is, uh, I just couldn't say enough about it. I, I'm also curious, uh, do any of you know the work of Chloe Maxman, who lives in Lincoln? <laughs> because I, I got to know her and wrote about her a little bit, and I just looked, her, looked into what she's up to now. And Chloe, who is 30 years old, uh, lives in Lincoln. Um, she, um, she was in the House, now in your Senate, and uh, on the Agriculture, Conservation, and Forestry Committee. And she is the type of leader I'm talking about, and you elected her. Now, she refuses negative campaigning, and she goes door to door to door to door. And she told me she walked down this dirt road to a trailer uh, of a gentleman, and he said no one, no one had ever before come to his door and asked him what his views were about what Maine should be doing. And so that's who she is. And I just read also she writes 50 thank you notes a day. <laughs> It's that connection that people feel that well, those we elect are really listening to us, despite the fact she's gotten blisters from it, I understand. <laughs> but that's, um, uh, Chloe is such an inspiration, and you made it possible. And uh, she upset, uh, you probably know this, but the top-ranking Republican uh, to become the youngest female senator in Maine history. So this is what democracy looked like. Thank you, Maine. So here I'm beginning my closing now, asking us, what is most needed from us now? What is most needed from us now? I want to say optimism is not required. I think it's too tough. 
So what I say to myself, I'm not an optimist. Human beings don't need to be optimistic. All human beings need to know that there is some possibility that our actions, your actions, can make a difference, can turn us toward life. Just a chance, just a possibility. So I started calling myself, well, I'm not, a po I'm not an optimist. I am a possibilist. <laughs> and that's all we need. And I think that you are possibilist. Uh, so, uh, uh, but something else is required. And now this gets kind of personal here. Um, I say goodness is not good enough. Courage is required. And I often hear humans say that we're too individualistic, but maybe we're too social, that if we have to break from the pack to stand up for what we believe in, it's too scary. And I feel that, not, <laughs> not this audience, but you know, I think what I'm talking about. So, because if we break from the dominant group that we've been part of and join, say, with this group, we might feel that we have lost standing in our original group, and it's very, very scary. And so I think that courage, that we're good enough, but courage is our call. And how do we stoke courage? Well, I love the words of Eleanor Roosevelt. I had this poster. Do something every day that scares you. <laughs> so um, the idea being that <laughs> it is too easy to, no matter how motivated, to get into rut and to not wanting to break from our pack. And I got a big gift once. I, I had the privilege of being in Kenya and talking to a minister there who had been very threatened by the authoritarian government. And he gave me this gift. He said, fear is pure energy. Pure energy. We can do with it what we choose. Right? And so I started renaming. When my heart starts to pound, when I'm afraid I'm going to be out of step or embarrassed or like that, I say, oh, that's your inner applause going off. <laughs> and then I say, oh, yeah, I got to do that thing because that's my inner applause cheering me on. So I love what Eleanor Roosevelt said to us. And um, since we are so social, however, finding a buddy, and it seems like you all have buddies here, but you know, to advice to our friends who feel isolated, just one person often that we can connect with and can challenge each other to do another scary thing. Because the best news about courage is that courage is contagious. Somebody's always watching. You may never know who, you won't know who, sees the risk that you are taking to go deeper and deeper, to follow your values, and they say, oh, maybe I could do that too. So where is your power? It is right here, right now, right here today, together with you. It is your vision, your determination, your courage, the buddies that are spreading your wisdom and that courage. So that is your power. Celebrate it, glory in it. Humans were made for this challenge today. And I want to close then with just four lines from the inaugural poet, Amanda Gorman. New dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I will never forget this day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for inspiring me. So, questions? Okay, I will repeat your question. Yes. So, um, thank you for the question. Um, the questioner asked me about my book, Food First, which I wrote with Joseph Collins, and where we really, um, we wrote that in the late 70s, we really, post-diet for a small planet, tried to go deeper into these roots of hunger. And um, uh, there is a book entitled World Hunger, Ten Myths, uh, which is a much more recent book of mine, and um, with Joe, and that, kind, that really updates a lot of what was in Food First. So I think that a lot of that still holds a lot of, uh, it came out a few years ago, but it's pretty current to the world food crisis situation. Sorry, I can't quite hear. Yes. Yes. Yes, thank you, thank you. She was talking about Food First, the book, and how it exposed the, the roots of hunger. Questions? Yes. Democracy? Exactly. I totally agree with you. And so the questioner is a statement, an uh, offering that I completely support, that capitalism must serve democracy, not the other way around, because it can't. Is that more or less a summary? And... Mm -hmm. Democracy, capitalism. Yes, I, I have... You know, I talk, I try to separate out a market system, which, you know, I think we've seen that government controlled production and consumption is not a very practical pathway, and that markets make a lot of sense, but we have to set the rules of that market to keep them fair, because the market left to itself then concentrates, concentrates, concentrates wealth, until we come, three people now control more wealth than half of the U.S. population. And we are among, as I said, more extreme than 120 countries. So um, I, it's really tricky because people conflate, you know, they, that if you are for uh, a market, then you're for capitalism. And we, 
we're still working on the language, a democratic market, a market that really serves us all, that has the ground rules set. And as I was saying, uh, you know, in a sense, the cliche, it's not rocket science, that oh, while it wasn't in any sense a perfect era, but from the 40s to the 70s, every income class increased its, um, its um, uh, wealth. It's, it's, excuse me, every income group increased its real family income, with the poorest gaining the most. And that's because the rules had changed. Uh, and that was part of the war on poverty that I was part of, yeah. Yes, because of the guidelines of New Deal and FDR. Absolutely. And, and so I was, that's what my youth was, and really seeing the changes in people's lives, and then to see it so radically reversed. And so I think all of us really can share the message with all of the, my generation and somewhat younger, you know, to, to explain that it hasn't always been this way, that there was this period of the, of the New Deal and then the period that I was describing in the War on Poverty, that we made significant strides against this profound inequity and hunger. So, because I, I, a lot of people have no idea that that ever happened. So, other questions, please. Question? Oh, sorry, sorry. I need somebody else's eyes here to help me. I want to be fair. <laughs> Yes, yes, very important. Unions are extremely important. They really, more than anything, brought us the middle class. So thank you for bringing that up. I, I, uh, I'll definitely, uh, that definite oversight. And I think that um, how can one not point fingers? What we have to point fingers at, not at saying these bad guys, you know, the Koch brothers or whatever. We have to say, wait, what are the rules that we tolerate that enable that to happen? That's what I mean. I mean, just demonizing the multi-billionaires, it just doesn't get us anywhere. <laughs> yes, but where were we? Where were we? Where were we? So I, I guess that's what I'm really always focused on, that it's easy to identify the bad guy, and yes, in many cases, it's appropriate. However, if it distracts us from the system root changes for democracy, then it doesn't serve us. And um, so I, I think you're nodding and you're agreeing, and I'm so glad you gave a shout out to unions because I just read that recently about how the unions really brought us the, the middle class. And also my son-in-law <laughs> uh, is a, uh, a union leader, my, my daughter Anna's husband, who's a, incredible, and he would be very upset with me if, if I didn't say what I just said. So I don't want that. So thank you for mentioning unions. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. So thanks for speaking to us. Uh huh. Um, when we think about decarbonization of agriculture, you talk about a third of carbon coming from agriculture. What do you think are maybe outside of beef production? What do you think some of the things we can do, both socially and politically, to make changes in that carbon world? 
Well, I, I certainly think, I just want to underscore that 37% was the entire food system, not just agriculture, in terms of greenhouse gas emission. Um, I think uh, it is certainly uh, has to do with the cost of organic foods and how do we make, uh, how do we make Biden's organic initiative is some step in the right direction. But how do we make it really possible for everybody in America to be able to afford uh, organic food and make that? Uh, and, and so the more we can push now the Biden administration in that direction to do even more, uh, and, uh, and also in our own communities, um, with our schools, uh, to step up and talk about what kind of food is in our cafeterias. This is what my daughter Anna is involved in as well. And I mentioned the the um, the program that is uh, encouraging school districts to sust buy sustainably raised and and uh, local food for the f for their food systems. So there are many sort of entry points, but I think so much of it has to do with uh, action at the national level that will lower the price and make it possible for people to afford. And and uh, and the more that we all can get out the word about how beneficial it is. Um, that how how negative uh, uh, pesticides are in the lives not just of the eater but as I mentioned in my talk uh, the the uh, farm workers too and and to really stress that because I don't think any American would want uh, you know to inflict that on somebody working the land that they were exposed to pesticides and had that kind of terrible uh, ill health as a result so. I think making that clear that if you're buying, uh, and I hate the word conventional, by the way. I hate that word. That's when I would strike. I call it corporate chemical instead of conventional because there's nothing conventional about it. <laughs> um, but that, that talk about the harms without guilt-tripping people, but just say, did you know? You know that every time you're buying this corporate chemically produced food, that there are consequences for farm workers and, and for farmers and for the biodiversity, which I didn't even get into, you know, but the loss of biodiversity on which all life depends. So it's all those things, you know. Thank you so much. Yes, please. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I thought I, I intended in this talk to mention those subsidies, which are subsidizing the very products that make us ill. <laughs> and uh, I think, mo again, most Americans have no idea that their tax money is going to subsidize the, the crops that are going into these highly processed foods that are so harmful to us. So I think um, talking to our legislators about that, ex explaining to our friends, uh, how negative that is for all of us, I think that's absolutely critical because it's so not understood. And, um, and how much money, what is it, six point something billion. Um, so it's a lot of money. It's a lot of tax money. Thank you for that. That's an excellent question. All your questions are really challenging and good. One more question. Yes. <laughs> Yes, thank you. 
Oh, beautiful question for the last question. Thank you. Uh, the question had to do with what about young people who are faced with this climate catastrophe that is so scary, disheartening, and could feel defeated before you begin? Those aren't really your words, but that's what I got. And I think um, there is no simple, but the young people that I work with, we know that it's part of the human spirit as long as we know we are doing something. We can't do it all, we can't predict, but we do something that our despair is, is, is uh, lessened and, 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 and uh, dissolved somewhat. That it's inaction, feeling powerless, that totally does us in. And so the more that we can make connections, and there's so many ways to do that for young people in uh, fighting the climate crisis, and allowing them to do something on a daily basis, and certainly what we put into our mouths, you know, that's, okay, I'm doing something. Um, I'm not contributing to that disaster. And then locally, you know, there are just so many uh, wonderful direct action groups now around the climate crisis that I honor, and I've tried to participate in some of them. And uh, I think action is the, count it, uh, is the antidote to despair. Um, and. I, I thank you for that last question. That's excellent question. I, I want to just say in closing that I'll never forget this day. And I want you to know that you give me new power, uh, new hope, that is, and hope is power. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for all that you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Here, I'll just make a wrap-up announcement. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much to our keynote speaker today, Francis Moore LePay. This is wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, Francis is going to be available to sign books, answer questions um, in the Mofka tent right over here uh, to the side of the exhibition hall. You can join us in the Mofka tent. We have uh, books for sale as well. So please join us there if you'd like to continue the conversation and sign up for Francis's email list. Um, thank you for being here today. Tomorrow we will have a keynote speaker at 11 a.m., Muhuddin Liba from the Somali Bantu Community Association. Please come back tomorrow and, and join us for that keynote, and it will also be live broadcast on WERU. Thank you to our partners for doing that. Thanks, everyone. Have a great afternoon. <laughs>